So this is a sermon I wrote and preached in my home church in March of 2019. And since it deals with the topic of marriage and relationships, I thought I'd share it on the blog and podcast and YouTube and wherever else I might stick it. Plus, uh, those in our supporters group who read the first draft really liked it, so that was encouraging. Uh, the direction from my pastor was to preach about the life of Christ, uh, something that tells us about God's love through his actions or what he said. And this was to fit into a sermon series that he was partway through called In the Footsteps of Christ. So in order to teach about God's love, I'm going to talk about divorce. Why? Uh, apparently because few others want to, and uh, that's my role, to talk about things that everyone else would rather leave well enough alone. So how can divorce show us about God's love? Uh, those two things don't really go together, do they? But I'll tell you. Uh, First, let's start by reading the account in the Bible. We can find these this in two places in the Gospels, um, Mark 10, verses 1 to 12, and Matthew 19, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read the Matthew account as it gives a bit more detail that I want to dig into. And I'm going to be reading in English Standard Version. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, the words will be on the screen. If you're reading on the blog, uh, the verses will be in the blog. If you're listening to the podcast, you can follow along or you can just listen. So, Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large clouds, crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said to them, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to the, him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case... Of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus was making his way back to Jerusalem, surrounded by people who he was healing, along come the Pharisees. As was often their plan, they came to trap him with a question. Uh, after, the feel, the, after the healing at the pool of Bethesda, um, which in my church we heard about a couple weeks ago, the rabbis, including the Pharisees, had been plotting Jesus' death. Of course, they weren't at the point that they were willing to kill him directly yet, so they were looking to, for ways to set large groups of people against him and possibly get him in trouble with the Romans. And as I was researching all of this, I found what is probably the most confusing Wikipedia page in existence. And here's what uh, this Wikipedia page uh, had on Herodias, the wife of Herod. I'm going to read it pretty much verbatim what they have on the page. So Herodias, who is not to be confused with Herodas, was a princess of the Herodian dynasty. She was the daughter of Aristobulus IV and his wife Bernice. She was the sister of Herod V, Herod Agrippa, Aristobulus Minor, and Miriam III. 
wife of the crown prince Antipater, and after his ex execution by Herod the Great, she was possibly the first wife of Herodicleus, the principal heir of Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great executed two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus IV, and engaged Herodias to Herod II, her half-uncle, who we think Herod called Herod Philip, not to be confused with Philip the Tetrarch, who has nothing to do with this story. Others have described him as Herod Bothius. So Herodias divorces Herod II and married Herod Antipas, who was the half-brother of Herod II, who had divorced his first wife, Phthalus, purely so that she could marry Herodias. And it was this marriage that John the Baptist openly criticized and got his head cut off for. So all of that is to say that it is possible that the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus killed in the same manner. Uh, that they were hoping he would say something against uh, Herod and Herodias's marriage, and that would get Jesus executed by the Romans, and then they wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. So that was kind of that's one possible plan that they might have had. The other side is on the Jewish side, and there was an argument over translation. So Moses uses this word uh, in Hebrew during this passage on Deuteronomy, which the Pharisees are bringing forward. Um, this one word, uh, which comes up in the reasons that you can divorce your wife, it can mean nakedness or indecency, but it could also simply mean improper behavior or something undesirable. undesirable. And there are two schools of thought uh, at the time in, among the rabbis. Uh, one followed the teachings of Rabbi Hillel, who generally preferred to follow the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. And then there were the conservatives, who followed the teachings of uh, the Rabbi Shammai, who taught that following the letter of the law was how you showed respect and worship to God. And Rabbis Hillel and Shammai, they, they were contemporaries of each other, uh, living about a generation before Jesus. So Jesus likely would have grown up knowing about these school, two schools, uh, how they interpreted the law, and uh, what their thoughts were on divorce. And divorce was taken pretty lightly in Jesus' time. In fact, divorce was seen as a privilege from God to the people of Israel. Uh, anybody in the world could marry, but only the Jewish people could divorce. Uh, that was how backwards things had become. Rather than God being the God of marriage, he was now the God of divorce. Uh, on this topic of divorce, these two schools were split. Uh, the liberals thought uh, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. If she burnt a meal, that's enough to write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. The conservatives felt that divorce was only valid in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. Uh, though I should point out that if you left your house without your hair covered or your arms covered, if you were a woman, that was considered being unfaithful and thus cause for divorce. Um, not only uh, could you divorce for cases like that, uh, but culturally you should. If you didn't, you'd be you'd be pressed to divorce your wife for um, such a blatant disrespect towards her husband. So. They come to Jesus and basically ask, you know, what school of thought do you follow? How do you interpret Moses' commands? Do you follow the letter, of law, the letter of the law, or do you believe that you have to follow the spirit of the law? Because Jesus had been going around kind of reinterpreting a whole bunch of stuff, and they were hoping, well, if, if we pit them against these two things, and he uh, says something against Moses, then 
maybe that'll be enough to rile up the people against them, and maybe they'll they'll kill him for us. So rather than pick a side, Jesus responds to them with a rebuke. Uh, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus said that God said this phrase. Uh, so they are no longer together, but so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus does two things in here. First uh, is that it's generally agreed that Moses wrote the majority of the first five books of the Bible. However, this led to a belief in Jesus' time regarding that passage. Uh, sorry, this passage. This uh, whole, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let a man not separate. It was believed that this was a commentary from Moses, and that's important because this whole argument from the Pharisees is based on uh, Deuteronomy, which is also written by Moses. So, Jesus tells the Pharisees and us that God himself said these words in, this garden, in the Garden of Eden, and that means that Jesus believed that Moses was divinely inspired in his writings. Uh, there was a lot of talk a few years ago uh, about how we can't take anything seriously in Genesis, or at least not take it literally, because we have no first-hand account. Uh, no one was there. No one was writing while they were there, while they were going through it. Uh, there were some denominations stating that Genesis was either an allegory, a myth, or just a story intended to show that God is the creator, but not actually teaching the actual events. But here Jesus flat out tells us that Moses wrote God's words down correctly. Jesus validates the story of Adam and Eve, letting us know it actually happened as, as Moses wrote it. Uh, and in doing so, he says that then Moses has no right to supersede or otherwise change God's plan for divorce. You see, if Moses had written this commentary, then Moses would have the power later to change it. But because Moses was just quoting God, uh, Moses then has no power to then therefore later change what marriage is. Second, by quoting this passage and attributing it to God uh, while still in Eden, uh, Jesus tells us that God's original intent was simple. Uh, marriage is for life, period. Uh, it's the joining of two people by God, so mankind has no authority to separate them, uh, even if it's we trying to separate ourselves from our spouse. Um, that's how it was in the garden, and in light of the kingdom of heaven being at hand, which Jesus often said, this is the mindset that we should have now. Of course, the Pharisees respond with the next logical question in their mind, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, if God never intended divorce, then why would Moses command us to give certificates of divorce? And Jesus responds saying, you know, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So Jesus flips the words around. They're the Pharisees had said that Moses commands them to divorce if they found something undesirable in their wife. Jesus corrects them, saying that Moses allowed or permitted uh, divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, some translations say that Moses suffered to suffered them divorce. Uh, in other words, like he was forced into it and conceded because he had no other option. And uh, some of these commands in 
during Moses' time, uh, some of these laws and statutes that God gave through him, uh, they were not all good. And that's something we don't like to hear because, uh, you know, God, we like to believe God only gives good commands. But I found this passage in Ezekiel 20, verses 23 to 25, that says, Also with an uplifted hand I swore to them along I swore to them in the wilderness that I would disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my laws, but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, and their eyes lusted after their parents' idols. And so I gave them other statutes that were not good and laws through which they could not live. I think sometimes the choice is between really bad and not good. I think this divorce command was one of those not good options. In other words, divorce was never intended, but like many laws in the Old Testament, they had to be put in place to stop the abuse that was happening. Because of how sinful we humans are, God had to step in and kind of mitigate the disaster. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of injustice going on. Men would marry, and then when they found another woman they lusted over, they would find some excuse just to divorce their wife and send her away so they could marry this new woman. Or a wife would think, oh, I wonder what it would be like to be married to that guy. I think I'll divorce this one, marry him, and then if that doesn't work, I'll just go back. Because while women didn't have a lot of rights, they did have um, some rights of divorce uh, in Moses' laws as well. Uh, people were getting married, uh, I think, kind of on a whim, saying, well, I, let's see if this works out. And if it doesn't, uh, we can just get divorced. Uh, that sounds very reminiscent of what's happening today. Uh, people, are, they get divorced, uh, hoping it'll last a few years, but nobody really expects it's going to last forever anymore. Um, so much so that a lot of people don't even bother getting married anymore. They just live together because, well, it's a lot easier to separate at that point. So laws were put into place to kind of stop the ridiculousness that was occurring with marriages and divorce in Israel. Of course, humans being sinful as we are, uh, we started marrying multiple people, and then Moses had to put rules around that as well, uh, which some interpret to mean that Moses was, and God therefore, was in favor of polygamy. Uh, it seemed like no matter what laws that uh, Moses and God kind of handed down to say, hey, look, let's stop what's going on, uh, they just couldn't win. So it wasn't that Moses or God was allowing divorce, but that people were already divorcing. Rather, Moses uh, or God and God were doing their best to protect the people. But again, Jesus reiterates that divorce was never intended. At the same time, he tackles two major issues in the Pharisees' questions in his responses. And everything up until this point in my sermon has really just been context and introduction. And now, to kind of get you up to speed with the situation and the history. And now we can finally like dig into what he actually said and what it means for us. So this first issue is uh, hardness of heart that Jesus mentions. And he, he had just finished answering the question, uh, how often should I forgive somebody? If you don't know that story, a man asked Jesus, how often should he forgive his brother or sister? Should he forgive them up to seven times? And Jesus answers, depending on the translation, that you should either forgive them 77 times or seven times, seven times, 70 times, which is 490 times. And it doesn't really matter. The point is that the children's, like the children's song says, you know, 70 times seven, just keep on forgiving. When you reach the end, take a breath and start again. The basic message is that you forgive, period. Uh, there's no counting. There's no end. 
You just keep on forgiving. So the next thing you know, the Pharisees are asking, well, when am I allowed to divorce my wife? Can I divorce her for any reason at all, or does it have to be something really bad? Uh, this question shows an attitude which is about as far away from a forgiving spirit as you can get. In fact, Jesus spends the next while talking about this hardness of heart because no one was getting the point. Just after this exchange, the disciples are scolded for stopping the children from coming to Jesus, another issue of hardened hearts. Then Jesus talks to a rich man about how to get into heaven, and the rich man uh, has been following all the rules, but he loves his wealth more than God. Uh, he, he didn't want to give that up. He had too hard of a heart towards that. Next, Jesus delivers a parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you don't know that parable, um, there's a man who owns a vineyard. He has too much work to do, so he goes out in the morning to hire some workers, and again at noon, and again in the evening, and throughout the day he hires workers, and he pays them all the same wage, uh, regardless of how long they worked. And those, uh, in the beginning of the day, they get upset because of the generosity that came later in the day. Uh, in short, basically, they had hard hearts. And then at the end of all these conversations and parables, two blind men come, and they can't get near Jesus because of the crowd. So they start shouting, asking to be healed. And the crowd, apparently having paid no attention, yells at them to be quiet, uh, ostensibly because they're trying to learn uh, how to be more forgiving and have less hardened hearts. And Jesus' own disciples, during this exchange uh, about divorce and marriage, um, their response to Jesus' declaration that marriage was intended for life uh, is that if such is the case for a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, if divorce isn't allowed, uh, I'm not sure I want in. And I found this great passage in a paper from the Adventist Biblical Research Institute, uh, which is a paper on this whole passage. And they wrote, Our marriages live off of forgiveness. We live off of forgiveness. Therefore, we extend our forgiveness to our spouses. The issue is not divorce. The issue is to forgive one another and let go of a hard heart. And I think this is the first issue. The disciples highlight the mindset that the Pharisees had by expressing these same thoughts. They couldn't even consider marriage without thinking about divorce. Rather than seeing it as a gift from God to be enjoyed, all they could think about was what the return policy was. So that's the first underlying issue that Jesus addresses with the Jesus addresses with the Pharisees' question, that the question betrayed the hardness of the Pharisees and the disciples' hearts. The second issue is the lack of understanding of just how deep a commitment of marriage is and what it signifies. You know, in Jesus' response to the Pharisees, he also points out that God made marriage in the Garden of Eden. In fact, I'd argue it's one of two institutions God created, even before the fall, to point back to him. And the first was Sabbath. Uh, it was, it's a weekly reminder to us of who God is as creator and what he did, uh, resting on the day that he rested. Uh, the second is marriage, as a living metaphor of God's relationship with us. And I realized this thinking, you know, why hasn't anyone ever pointed these out to me? And then I found out it wasn't an original thought. Another writer uh, back in the 1800s uh, wrote this. Uh, when the Pharisees afterwards questioned him concerning the lawfulness of divorce, Jesus pointed his hearers back to the marriage institution as ordained at creation. Because of the hardness of your hearts, he, 
he said, Moses suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He referred them to the blessed days of Eden when God pronounced all things very good. Then marriage and Sabbath had their origin, twin institutions for the glory of God and the benefit of humanity. Then, as the Creator joined the hands of the holy pair in wedlock, saying, A man shall leave his wife and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one, he enunciated the law of marriage for all children of Adam to the close of time. This is Ellen, Ellen White, if you're interested, uh, from her book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Uh, the quote continues, That which the Eternal Father himself had pronounced good was the law of highest blessing and development for man. So our society tells us that marriage was simply a construct created for humans to facilitate the raising of children to provide resource, uh, the chance of survival by forcing a family union that will pool resources and will decrease the chances of inbreeding and thus is simply a tool for evolution. But we Christians know better. We know marriage, whether it's our own or our parents or the marriages around us, are living metaphors of God's love for us. They're also a training ground for building Christ-like characters. <clears throat> and I wanted to show you something. The, the last thing Jesus says in this particular exchange in Matthew uh, is this. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those for whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Receive this, receive it. So if you don't know, a eunuch is a man who has been castrated. He has the inability to uh, have sex. So, But I don't think Jesus was talking about being physically unable to mate. Uh, the Message Bible translates it like this. Not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth seemingly never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. And this translation, I don't like it. Uh, this is an example of where I feel readability needs to be balanced with correct interpretation. Now, while I agree with their interpretation that Jesus was talking about anyone who will not marry, not actual eunuchs, I disagree that with the rest of this translation. It sends a message that if you don't marry, it's because you aren't mature enough, that you lack aptitude and grace. And I don't see that in Jesus' words in any other translation, nor in the overall message of the Bible. You know, Paul writes... Uh, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 9. So in other words, those of us who are married are the ones who lacked the aptitude and grace needed. We lack self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Our marriages are basically training wheels. Marriage is a remedial class, an intensive course to teach us to be more Christ-like because we didn't have the aptitude, grace, or self-control needed to learn on our own. We needed to be forced to grow by having a daily reminder of just how flawed we are and how much we need to be more Christ-like. Now for those in this remedial class, if marriage is a metaphor for our relationship with God, then what does it mean if we can't continue to love our spouse? If love is a choice, as the Bible teaches it is, if we fall out of love with someone who is there every day who we can physically see, touch, hold, and share with, 
what chance do we have of staying connected to a God who, let's face it, is a little bit harder to maintain a connection with simply because he's so alien to us in every way? Uh, I mean, he he's there always, but you can't exactly ask him for a hug. Now, I'm talking a lot about marriage, but the truth be told, all, all relationships teach you these things, so you don't need to be married to learn them. It's just that marriage is, well, intense. As far as relationships go, it's uniquely designed without an escape plan. Uh, once you commit, that's it. Uh, this is why there's so much emphasis on choosing a spouse who is a believer. Because once you're married, there's no turning back. Even if you marry someone who has the same worldview as you, whose intention is it is to seek God all the days of their lives, it's still enforced close confinement of two individuals in almost constant conflict, conflict simply because they're two individuals. It's sort of the lifelong version of if two people are in conflict, then you lock them in a room until they reach common ground or kill each other. It's not intended to be something that you can get out of. Uh, you don't get to say, God can, uh, I think I chose wrong, can I get a do-over? Can I pay, choose somebody else to teach me to, to be more loving? Uh, you can't because that would violate this metaphor. If we go into marriage seeing divorce as a parachute, if things go bad, do we go into a relationship with God with the same mentality? Uh, well, I'll, I'll believe him until it gets difficult and then, then I'm out. You know, I think this has been kind of a failing of many, many churches. You know, uh, we have many churches who spend so much time preaching hellfire that they focus on hell rather than focus on the gift of God uh, here on our daily lives, let alone the eternal one. You know, how many of them are so focused on hell that they don't realize the amazing gift in front of them? It, my denomination, uh, we don't preach eternal hellfire because we don't believe it's a biblical concept. You can ask me about that if you like. Uh, but many in my church still focus more on running away from sin rather than running towards God. How many of us are so working so hard to avoid avoid divorce that we kind of forget to love? Uh, the Bible constantly tells us that marriage is a metaphor for our relationship with God. The entire book of Hosea is a living example of God's relationship with an adulterous and idolatrous Israel. Jesus' parables often use bride and groom imagery, imagery to teach us about a relationship, our relationship with God. And Paul, author of a large portion of the New Testament, regularly referenced Christ and the church when talking about marriage, even going so far as to equate sex with our intimate times with God. So if marriages are living metaphors for God's love for us, when I so marriages are living metaphors for God's love for us. Sorry. When I'm wronged or hurt by my wife, it teaches me about how God feels when I'm wrong or hurt him. When I hurt her, I feel remorse, not because I've done something wrong that violated a contract, but because the person I love was hurt by my actions. Uh, when I'm forgiven and shown unconditional, unexpected, spontaneous love by my wife, it teaches me about God's love for me. And, you know, we have this verse in Romans 5, verse 8, you know, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, God, Christ died for us. 
you know, it's, it is this unconditional sacrificial love that's not based on a contract of what you're going to give me. So, and it doesn't need to be in our marriages. It can be in the marriages of our parents, our friends, our children, if we get to that stage in life. We all learn lessons from the marriages around us. Hopefully, we're seeing examples of unconditional and sacrificial love, humility, submission, and respect. When we see these things uh, as a metaphor for God's love for us and relationship for us, we learn about unconditional sacrificial love. And when we act out these things, we reflect these teachings to everyone within our sphere of influence. Unfortunately, we all... We also sometimes show the opposite. When we see spouses being cruel to each other, making jokes at each other's expenses, when we see or have selfish attitudes, uh, counting or recollecting of wrongs, when we say things that express the idea that uh, our love is contingent on their good behavior, or that uh, our love is contingent on our selfish needs being met. You know, when people make jokes or have attitudes that show that their body is being kept from their spouse or that our marriages are built on expectation of delivered rights, you know, when we experience or see divorces in the Christian community, it sends a different message. It teaches people that, that God is selfish, that God is controlling, that God only loves you as long as you perform. God may leave you if you don't keep up your end of the contract. If you aren't good enough a person, then you don't, or if you don't do enough good things, then you might be surprised by where you end up. You know, that even if you want to stay with God, he may decide to leave you. And instead, Jesus, despite not being married, sends a clear message about God's love for us through the metaphor of marriage. God's original plan was to never leave us, but to stay with us forever. It's only due to the hardness of our hearts that we initiate divorce with him. And the only reason God lets us go is for spiritual infidelity. That is our continued desire to place other things above him. But God, being love incarnate, cannot have a hardened heart. He only has infinite, unconditional love for us. A love that is so strong, he will let us go if we're really persistent about it, but one that is seeking reconciliation for as long as possible. And that's why this sermon isn't really about marriage or divorce. Uh, if you are married, then live out your marriage as if it, as it should be, a reflection of God's commitment to us, an example for our uh, ourselves, for our family, and our friends, and the rest of the world. If you've been married and are separated, divorced, or widowed, then don't let that sense of insecurity uh, from that bleed into your relationship with God. Trust that he will be there for you, that his desire is a relationship with you, and that he will never leave, cheat, or die on you. If you decided to leave him, he ultimately won't stop you, but he will never be the one to instigate a separation. And if you've been through a divorce, please don't tell uh, people that divorce was the best thing that ever happened to you or that leaving was the best choice you ever made, especially if you got remarried. Uh, I mean, what message does that send about your new marriage? Your divorce, uh, it sends a message that your divorce was a better decision than marrying the person that you're with. I mean, I get it. I've heard some terrible accountings of what happens in some marriages, but let's treat the entire thing as a regrettable event not a glorifying of the separation. And I know a lot of these times these are just jokes, but even jokes have a way of informing the mind and setting expectations, especially among little impressionable children, even teenagers. And if you're single, 
who knows what the future will bring. Uh, perhaps you will experience a marriage where you can get to practice this metaphor for yourself. Perhaps you won't. Perhaps you don't need it because you can, and you can focus on God without the distraction, just as God is completely focused on each of us. And so I think Jesus' response to the Pharisees went right over their heads and the heads of the disciples. I think it goes over ours as well most of the time. Uh, I grew up in the church and I've read and heard this passage dozens of times. And I didn't see this until a couple weeks ago when I start, I was asked to preach and the idea suddenly popped into my head. I think Jesus wasn't only correcting their attitude about divorce, but I think he was correcting their attitudes about God. The Pharisees were going around teaching people, if you don't stack up, God won't want you and he will abandon you. Uh, maybe not explicitly with their words, but their focus on the law, especially how much can I get away with mentality, uh, it belied their view of God. Uh, Jesus turns it around and teaches a different view, one that started in the garden. You know, God created all of this and he desires to be with us forever. He will never initiate a divorce with us. God will never leave you. <laughs>